you have to have a learning mindset. You know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, and you think you know all the answers, you're going to be a very unsuccessful entrepreneur. Hello, hello, hello. I am so excited because today we have episode 59, 59 with an amazing guest, a local guest here in Vancouver, um, a legendary guest of Marcus New. Now, Marcus, before we get into the, the nitty gritty and the, the, the blah blahs, let me just uh, start off with giving a, an introduction and it's a little bit longer and I think it should be. So let me just get into this. Marcus New is the managing partner and chief entrepreneur of InvestX Capital. InvestX investments have included SpaceX, Airbnb, Lyft, Impulse, Possible Foods, Pinterest, Spotify, Palantir, Dropbox, DrocuSign, Kraken, and other global category leaders. We know a lot of those ones. Furthermore, through Marcus's family office, he has led more than 150 private placements into early stage private and public companies. Prior to InvestX, Marcus was the founder and chairman and previously the CEO of Stockhouse Publishing, one of North America's leading online financial communities and a global hub for accredited investors. Before launching Stockhouse, Marcus built Stock Group Media, an online information company whose client base consisted of the top Canadian brokerage firms, global institutional sales desks, and hedge funds. Marcus is an active participant in the entrepreneurial community, having served as the past president of the Vancouver chapter and Canadian conference chair of the entrepreneurs organization known as EO. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. Awesome. It's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, a fellow Vancouverian. There you go. Vancouver. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'll just, I'll just say, I met, I met, I met you two weeks ago, I suppose, or at least uh, solidified it when we were at the, uh, the C-148 hours uh, event. And yeah. I was, I was lucky enough to, uh, to, to, to join a, a lovely breakfast with you. And, you know, you blew me away in terms of not only your, your, your knowledge of, you know, from, from blockchain and crypto to just your pure kindness and, um, you know, your good hearted way of wanting to be there to help out these young entrepreneurs that are part of the 48 hours. So I, I realized right away I wanted to have you on the show and I really appreciate you stepping up and, and, and doing so. Um, but why don't we start right from the beginning? Can you tell me the creation story of InvestX Capital, please? Yeah, well, InvestX came out of, um, and, and, and by the way, it was great to see you there at uh, breakfast as well. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm always pretty inspired by kind of the next generation of entrepreneurs that are coming up in Canada. And oh, I think sure. they're a lot stronger. I know we'll talk a little bit about that later on, but a lot stronger than the, because some of the first generations kind of had to pave the path there. But um, mm -hmm. InvestX really came out of um, my experience at Stockhouse. And in Stockhouse, we covered the financial markets, so the public equity markets, and we had analysts and writers, and we had forums, and we had financial portfolio tools and charting systems and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that, you know, investors could come there and, and understand how to actually invest their money more successfully in the public equity markets. And sometimes when you're deeply in something is when you really see you know, something changing or something that's happening. And one of the things that we saw was that private companies, venture-backed private companies, were starting to stay private a lot longer. And it started a little bit with Facebook before they went public, um, but they're backed by venture capital. And instead of the historical time of go public, you know, kind of at year four or five or six, like Amazon did and most, most companies do, mm -hmm. um, these companies were actually staying private longer and they're getting funded by a small group, what we would call club institutional investors. Mm -hmm. And we looked at that and we said, geez, why are these you know, 10 or 12 institutional investors? And they were like Fidelity and T Row and Tiger Global and you know, TPG. Why are these guys, the only guys that get to make these returns? And so when these companies got public, they were much bigger. And mm -hmm. so, and all this profit was being made in these private rounds, you know, as this kind of shift went from where 
you know, historically they would exit at kind of year five and now all of a sudden they're exiting at year 10 and 12 and there's 12, 12 institutional guys making money. And we said, geez, there's gotta be a way for more people to make money there instead of just these 12 institutional investors. And so, so this was kind of the, the, the piece that we saw. Of course, you go into a lot more details in these pieces, like how do you enable getting in and doing this business? You know, and, and there, was a, there was a couple of pieces that were really important for us too. And, and one was really the catalyst for starting the business. And so, so we started to see this trend happening in the private markets, but again, had no clue on how we could actually solve that problem. Right, so these twelve institutional investors would make all the money. The companies would go public, and then public equity investors would get a chance to invest in these amazing businesses. But not until that point in time. And of course, as you know, Chris, and every investor knows, you can never get the IPO shares of those companies. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, those companies basically get IPO shares from two companies: Goldman Sachs, mm -hmm. Morgan Stanley. And if you are not a top institutional investor on one of those two companies' platforms, you do not get any IPO shares. So, so the investors are buying these shares at more premium because they not only do they not get the benefit of how the company is growing in the private world, but then when they can't get the IPO shares either and they have to invest later on. And so, so it was really stacked you know, in, in the, to a disadvantage for regular investors. And, mm -hmm. and so we had a mission at Investex to be able to create broader access to more people to get advantage, take advantage of these amazing businesses, add them to portfolio and be successful investors as a result. But you always need some catalyst to start your business. You know, now lots of entrepreneurs, it could just be the insight that there's this big problem and, and they work to figure out and create a solution on it. Mm -hmm. The thing that we needed that was really important for us when we started the business, and, and we saw it in Stockhost, right? And so, so the formation of it was actually being incubated in Stockhost, but um, was that there was regulatory change. And so what happened is in 2013, the SEC started to change some elements of the Securities Act through a piece of legislation that passed by Congress called the Jobs Act. And, and it's called basically the Jumpstart Our Business Startup Act. And, and the idea behind it, and it, it had like, I think 94% you know, approval of all the senators and, and all the Congress people. But the idea was you know, to change these old legacy rules related to how fundraising for companies, startups, which was really the intention of it, mm -hmm. uh, could be used in terms of the number of shareholders you could have on your capital table before, before this legislation, once you hit 500, you had a whole bunch of different issues happen in your business if you got more than 500 shareholders. Um, the ability to market online, right? And so we saw as a result of this change in this legislation change, the ability to actually be able to do something more electronic versus the way you know these kind of investments have been made through brokerage <laughs> firms or banks or different things like that. And so, so it was a combination kind of, of seeing a really, uh, a problem that was really, really interesting where there was a, it basically disadvantaged what we would say really is our passion with our passion at Stockhouse and the same as our passion here at Investex was, you know, our passion is for investors and, mm -hmm. and that they should get the same opportunities and not have, you know, the establishment, you know, be able to benefit to the disadvantage mm -hmm. of everyone else. Right. For and sure. so, and not to tell like a Robin Hood story, it's not obviously, you know, so quaint, but the context being is that why should a, a, an institutional group of people be able to take advantage of others? Right. And so, mm -hmm. That combined with the regulatory change was kind of how we we started it off, and 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 that's what launched the business. But we did incubate it actually in Stockhouse. But one of the things that I really deeply learned and understood from my experience at Stockhouse before that um, was that you just can't run two businesses as an entrepreneur. Mm. You just yep. can't do it. Like and and I know there's a couple exceptions. One's named Elon, right? <laughs> but outside of that one exception, like e even if you look at Branson, like at least you know they're all kind of thematically you know, kind of join somehow, but maybe there's two, okay, there are two of them. But, you know, every other entrepreneur I know from being an EO for 20 something years, from going to BOT and, G and GOT over at MIT for the last 20 years 
is you don't see that, right? And so, so knowing that, I say, hey, look, what I got to do is I got to promote our head of operations to be president at Stockhouse, you know, let her build and run the ship there and mm-hmm. focus 125% on how to make Investec successful. So, mm-hmm. so that was kind of the, the, how we started off. Were you, were you happy with that decision of choosing one over the other? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. you know, sometimes too, what happens is, you know, you know, when you, when you've had a few different entrepreneurial experiences and you had some success with them, you know, you get these, you get these learned understanding of what, what creates success, right. Mm-hmm. You know, and what are some of the elements of it? Now that there is no guarantee this was going to be successful. And I can tell you like the 10 war stories about how we had <laughs> to get to where we are today, but mm-hmm. you know, the context still was, you know, that those experiences are important, but, but what I really believed um, in when I looked at Investex and that opportunity, right. Mm-hmm. Is that it, that, it was my career was built for Investex. It was built mm-hmm. for that moment. And the reason why I was built for that moment, it was because I had enough entrepreneurial experiences of failures and success, right? To know some of the core elements and how to build a business. Mm-hmm. You know, I had some financial resources from the success of having, you know, ha- mm-hmm. had a, a career in terms of building businesses. And I was in an area where regulatory change was creating the opportunity. And you can almost think of that like the cell phone business and deregulation of telephone. Whenever regulatory change comes in, it actually creates you know, a cascading element of events that actually can create some incredible businesses because mm-hmm. regulatory was this constraint that stopped incumbents, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so regulatory change in a un- total scalable business, like there's unlimited scale in it. So if you think about it, it's kind of matching opportunity, huge opportunity, regulatory change with an experienced entrepreneur that had some financial resources. And because I had track record, I was able to get, you know, seed capital very, very quickly, mm-hmm. right? I raised, you know, two and a half million dollars on, on a PowerPoint presentation. Now, I didn't hurt that I put some of the money up myself, but I did mm-hmm. institutional investors wrote a check because, you know, we had success in history, right? So, mm-hmm. so those are some of the elements that, you know, started off. Well, interesting. Well, you know, I just want to go back because I, I think I think it's important to understand, or at least you can help us color color this in. Is when you say, you know, so with Investex, you're you're trying to get those companies to go, you know, to to IPO later, and there's you know there's the the, the upside that could be captured by the investor side. But what's the upside for the company to IPO later or to to take that round D E F whatever it is? Is there is there a, a real reason uh, for them to do that? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, and, and for clarity, like you know, we make investments in these companies. There, we're not. We're not, you know, influencing them on how long they stay. These these companies typically that we invest in the invest stocks are number one in the world in their class, right? And you you name some of them. Airbnb is number one in the world in their class. DocuSize number one in the world in their class. Spotify number one in the world in their class, right? So so these are incredible businesses with incredible entrepreneurs, incredible leadership teams, and they went through the startup journey the same way, you know, as you speak to people at C100 and you speak to every entrepreneur. They all have the same startup journey, right? You know, theirs obviously became more successful, but but nevertheless, so. But, you know, but the, the real benefit that, the, that these entrepreneurs had was if you go public, right, you have a different timeline on how things work. You work quarter to quarter against analysts, right? You know, that analyst expectations, that is what you do, right? You know, there's a long process to go public. Everyone knows what your business is, right? If you're in private and you can get a, a, a $250 million check stroked you in six or eight weeks, right? Mm-hmm. You just pick up these checks because it's no distraction. It's easier. You just keep going, right? Yeah. Gives you more flexibility in trade sale or M&A tra- you know, transaction and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, and you can always be public, right? So, so a lot of these entrepreneurs basically took this, you know, and I would say, you know, pretty fully valued money, right? Mm-hmm. For them. Um, and because it's a lot easier, right? And there's a lot less complexity in their business. 
And I guess a lot of these, a lot of these leaders, I mean, the, the one benefit, as you said, um, you know, when you're, when you're having to deal with, with the public markets and all of the uh, regulation around that is you can steer your ship a lot more, you know, the way you want to steer it. And you're not worried about quarterly reports and all of these things. So I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, you, you, you touched on, you know, I mean, obviously you, you're, you're, um, you know, the companies that we mentioned that you've invested in are definitely blue chip, uh, you know, the top, top in their game. But can you tell me a little bit more about your thesis around investing um, in, in these companies? How, how do you find them and, and, and what do you say is, yeah, this is a company that we'd want to invest in? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And so to do that, you know, the way we looked at the marketplace was, you know, um, the public markets are highly efficient. Okay, mm -hmm. I always joke, you can't beat the Goldman Sachs computers. You just cannot. And mm -hmm. so if you think you have some advantage in the, in the, in the public markets, you can't do it consistently. It's just mm -hmm. because, because if you think about information, it's readily available, right? You know, but the tactics of hedge funds and things like that, where they're flying airplanes over measuring ships in the in the sea of how many are coming in, you're never going to beat these guys, right? This is impossible. So mm -hmm. now, not to say that you can't be an ETS and have long-term investing and, and do the, those proper things that a lot of people do. So the private markets are the exact opposite of that. They're massively inefficient. Mm -hmm. Information is scarce. It's asymmetrical. You know, there's no pricing, price discovery, valuation, all that stuff. No one knows, right? And so, so you have. So if you think about how do you make money, right? Well, you know, if you go to inefficient markets, you know, there's probably better opportunity to make money. Now, one of the things I learned at Stockhouse, though, right, is that you know there's a wide range of risk in stocks, right? A very wide range. You can go into small cap stocks, micro cap stocks, mining stocks. You know, Vancouver is popular for mining <laughs> stocks. You know, oil and gas stocks. You know, and then you can go all the way up to the Shopify's of the world. You know, these amazing businesses. You know, super high torque. Um, so there's a big wide variety. When you go in the private markets, it works kind of the same way. But here's interesting statistics, right? So if you're in the venture business, about 66% of your investments will create a negative return for you, 66%, right? And so this is a high failure rate. Early stage venture capital is very difficult to be successful all the time. Mm -hmm. The reason why it's very, very difficult is because there's also a signaling effect in it. So I'll give you a perfect example. As you, and, you know, and, and, you're, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this because they've been listening to your to your podcast, you know, they will know this from some of the people you've interviewed, of course. So, but the context is that if someone's raising a seed round that's $1 million, right? Put that one aside because usually it's just angels. But if they raise a series A and they're doing $10 million series A, that's basically three checks, right? $3.3 million, or maybe it's five checks at 2 million. There's three to five investors getting in on that deal, total. You know how many venture funds there are? <laughs> you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So what happens is from a signaling effect is the best quality deals go to a very, very small group. Now, I'm not saying you, there's funds that haven't had got one and got lucky and been able to then hopefully leverage that into maybe get one more in the next one because they're getting a little bit more signal effect. But it's just really tough to make returns in venture. This is why you see 66% basically of investments there, you know, create negative returns for them, right? And so because those companies themselves are so immature, you have to be very, very good at predicting what is totally unpredictable. Right. And so, so they go back to these binary effects, you know, and, and you can read this with, you know, Peter Thiel's talked about this and in a zero to one and all these kind of things. We basically got to make big bets on big ideas, you know, in big markets because we need one to make for the whole portfolio because everything else could be a loser. Right. And so that's a tough way to invest. Right. And so, and, and, and really, you know, the top, the top 10% funds make most of the returns for the asset class in general, you know, in quarter and top 25% tell. Move that up. Right. So basically got a lot of failure there. Move that up to where we invest. Right. We don't want to take any of those risks, right? Mm -hmm. We're not investing any company trying to figure out product market fit, trying to figure out you know, how to do their business, how to get a management team, how to get a supply channel working, zero of that. 
What we want to do is be in that part of the, the J curve, right? Where they're basically just in the acceleration phase. That mm -hmm. comes accelerating. It needs more money just to keep doing what it's doing so it can grow faster. That's what it needs. And so this area of investment is called growth equity. It's not venture risk, right? Now, the problem, of course, is we don't get any 10Xs, right? But here's the interesting thing. 90% of what we do are successful investments, mm -hmm. nine zero, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so you got a 90% successful rate instead of 33, right? And so this is a big difference. And so, so we don't get zeros, right? There's no zeros where we are, right? And so now we, we get some losers, right? We've invested in some, you know, some bad, made some bad investments that we continue to work on learning from, but, but that's mm -hmm. kind of fundamental thing. So, so where we act in stage is very consistent, which is in this growth stage. So typically that would be D, E, F, if you want to think from a series perspective, we'll go into mm -hmm. some C, right? We'll never be in A's and B's, right? Like it's, you know, it'll have to be something exceptional to ever step into a B. We would never be an A ever, right? Or anything lower than really C. Um, the second thing is that we are pretty uh, industry agnostic because mm -hmm. we, but we are tech investors, right? And so, um, but we do have what we call our five-factor model. And so the five-factor model kind of shapes how we kind of look at companies, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first one is, First factor is we look at for companies that are about a billion dollars in valuation minimum. Mm -hmm. And the reason again there is that the company has a lot of, you know, kind of girth beneath it, right? You know, it's moving, it's accelerating. We don't, we don't invest in companies that aren't at least hundred million dollars in ARR, for example, if they're in that kind of a business. Mm -hmm. So but we look for companies that are about a billion dollars. Most of them have raised at least half a billion dollars of invested capital, right? So mm -hmm. these are big established growing companies that are accelerating, right? So the second thing that we look for is we want to own these companies for about three years. Okay. That's kind of our mandate, right? And so mm -hmm. we look at them. If that company is in a series C or D and they're four years old, it will not be a company for us because mm -hmm. we, and I won't go into all the details, but we know from our experience a bunch of the dynamics around risk related to companies that are that early with that much velocity, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and it just creates another layer of risk, right? And so, mm -hmm. so typically we look to own these companies for three to four years. You know, we look for companies that have a 40% growth rate. And the, and the benefit of a 40% growth rate is it helps us to uh, manage valuation risk. And I'll give you a perfect example. The market's melted down, as we all know, the last six months, right? The, you know, every asset class is a meltdown, right? Unless, mm -hmm. unless you're in oil and gas, right? So, so I don't want to admit some of that, but yes. <laughs> I have no oil and gas, so I don't even benefit from that. So, okay. But if you think about this, you know, this kind of meltdown, um, if you invest at you know, the high, a high valuation, let's say you invested at a peak valuation period in private, so it's kind of November, December last year, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of idea. Um, and there's a lag to the public markets, but if you invest at a high valuation, what it does, it extends the time period for you to have the company work back into that new valuation reset. So let's just take an example for some simple math. You know, you invest at 20 times, you know, revenues in a SaaS business, and now the market's 10 times revenue, right? But that company's growing at 50% a year. So just some simple math, and of course not compounding to go into that level of detail, but basically over two years, you've now grown into the new valuation again. Right. Mm -hmm. So so the valuation you invested in two years from now will be the same valuation. Right. So what it does is it extends out the time period and lowers the IRR on the investment. OK, mm -hmm. that's pretty simple math, mm -hmm. but it's not a zero. Right. So 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 by kind of looking at these growth rates, what allows you to do is help to manage out. So a, it creates return because that's how you, you know, if the company's building like that, rolling 40 percent a year and, and you're at normal valuations then you're going to make 40 plus percent a year. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but if it doesn't, it helps in terms of managing that. So, so we look for growth rates like that. And then we have a, a few proprietary things that we do that are really kind of more unique to us. Right. And so one of them is that in the, uh, this primary shares, when, when company raises money, so let's say a company wants to raise $300 million and they mm -hmm. issue shares from treasury and they call it series D, right. And it's mm -hmm. led by co two and, and a bunch of guys fall behind it. 
And then what happens is in between this period of time, the average venture back company raises money about every 20 months. Okay, so just over a year and a half, they raise another round, right? It'd be the E round, right? And so in that period of time, there's need for people to sell their shares, especially as companies are more than 10 years old, right? Employee mm -hmm. stock comes have expired, early funds have expired, people need to sell their shares. So the, the sale of those shares we call secondary shares, right? And so, so that secondary market is super inefficient, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens in that market though, is that if you are a fidelity and you want to own $100 million of a company, you pretty much have to buy it in primary. Because if you go in the secondary market, there might be lots that are 800 grand, 2 million. Piecemeal. You know, yeah. Right, right. You know, and you got, you got legal and due diligence and all these things. And you have to find these investors that want to sell. You don't know where they are. And you have to negotiate price. And you're like, oh my goodness, that's like 30 odd lots that I got to mm -hmm. put together to get my $100 million. Forget that. I'm never doing that. I'm just going to go for the primaries. Okay. So it's just too much work. We've actually built that capability in our organization. We do that. And so mm. we go and we make we put together these small odd lots. And I'll give you a perfect example, a company called Palantir, that'd be a mm -hmm. name that you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we ended up investing about 50 something million dollars in it, but we took 42 people off the cap table, right? Mm -hmm. They're working with the company, 42 people off the cap table by buying these odd lots. But as a result, we got a significant discount to the fair value of those shares. Because if you have $800,000 you want to sell, there's no mm -hmm. bunch of institutional investors saying, okay, I'm going to pay premium price for that. It's like, yeah. that's a hassle. So I'm going to take a discount of 20%, 30%, whatever the discount might be, right? Mm -hmm. And so we pick up all these small odd lots as part of our strategy, which helps us to create more returns for clients and also helps us to manage valuation risk, right? So, so that's another aspect of what we do. So, and there's a few other things, but really at the end of the day, we kind of look at, you know, can we find billion dollar companies growing up 40% a year? Can we own them for three years? Can we do some things proprietary to help us manage risk? And it's been super successful. Now mm -hmm. it's easy to say, Chris, but it's super hard to do. Yeah. Right? It's just super hard to do. So it's, it's, it, there's a lot of math involved too. And, and, and I would imagine it's selective math. Like it's kind of the, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder sort of math as well with some of that. Um, well, 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 tell me, have you, have you made any placements in like, I mean, these are big companies, obviously, when you're talking about, you know, C round, D row, not even C round, sometimes D, E, F and, you know, billion dollars. Are there any Canadian companies that you've, um, you know, that fit that uh, criteria? Yeah. Um, there are not a lot. Uh, yeah, you know, I'd like to invest in more. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, we could find what I would call um, an under a misunderstood story, or maybe a story that is, you know, kind of uh, getting some re-energization. Uh, mm -hmm. That's probably not even a word. I, I just made it up. But you know, you got the, kind of the, <laughs> we got it. It colored it. it colored it. <laughs> Re-energization. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so a, a story like that actually is um, a Hootsuite. And yeah. so, you know, Hootsuite have been around a long, long time. Um, you know, their founder done a great job building that thing up. And then the kind of business kind of just stalled a little bit, right? And kind of, you know, I wouldn't say it didn't lose its way, but it just kind of stalled a little bit, you know, as, it, as most of these companies do, going through product iteration is very, very hard for businesses, right? They, mm -hmm. they roll on a product, but to go through a second product or third or fourth product iteration is very, very tough. And so, mm -hmm. so anyways, it stalled a little bit. And so they had decided that they were going to, you know, put some new leadership in there. Uh, mm -hmm. So they brought on a new CEO of the company, um, who was committed to trying to work and had a great background. And, and so mm -hmm. point being was that when we saw that, we said, okay, look, this story been around a long time. And so as a result of it being around a long time, investors had a lot of fatigue with it. And so what do fatigued investors do, right? Mm -hmm. They sell shares at what we thought were very clear discounts to true value of that business, sure. right? And so, so we thought we were buying this business in a really interesting time. And we put about $50 million to work in that business, you know, through this process. So, so this would be a Canadian story that we bought. But, mm -hmm. but not kind of in its growth path, it was more kind of in its 
kind of regrowth path, let's call it. Well, you're, you're recognizing a gem, uh, which, I, which, I, which I understand. And you know what? And speaking of gem, um, you see how I segue into that. Can, yeah, you, tell, can you tell me about the, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty amazed I did that. Uh, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about the Investex gem platform? Please. Oh, Chris, that's totally intentional. You know it. I mean, you know, oh, you I wish. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> that was just you being super sharp. I love it. Um, so it's early. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, so when I go back to when we started Investex, you know, you know, we can have this thesis of how to do this, but when you get into it, you're like, oh my goodness, this is really, really hard. Like, you know, we may want to invest in a Spotify, but how are you going to invest in a Spotify? It's not like they want you to come in and invest in it, right? And so, you know, what value you're driving there and, you know, what all these kind of things, right? And so when we got into it, what we found was, you know, the, the market was just super inefficient, right? Like, if I want to buy some shares, if the company's not raising money right now, I got to wait 20 months for them to raise money again, right? And let's just say I could even get into that, which I probably can't, especially as a new, new newer company at the time. You know, I got to buy it it's secondary, right? That's where I can start, right? But when you go in the secondary market, it's like, well, where are the buyers and sellers? Like, what price should I pay? What's it transact? No clue. Mm-hmm. No one knows. It's like the most opaque market in the planet. It's like the 1980s OTC market. It's just, it's super <laughs> opaque. So, so you go, okay, well, what do we do? So as we started getting into it and working on how to solve these problems, like any business does, how do we solve the problems so that we can create success in the business, right? Mm-hmm. We found that there, there's got to be another way. And so we took our experience at Stockhouse and building platforms and a stock group building technology for broker dealers. And we said, look, what happens if we put together a more of an electronic private platform, we'll mm-hmm. call it a wholesale platform, where we could actually help to match up buyers and sellers more efficiently, create more price discovery, and actually create more uh, transactions and make the market more efficient, right? Because again, there's really lots of people on telephones. That's how you would find things. You'd be on telephones, you'd try to find people and create a lot of noise in the marketplace. The issuers didn't like it. People, and then, you know, people found you could make money here. So they'd be phoning down all the employees. Do you want to sell some shares? And of course, the, the issuers hated that, right? And, you know, so, so the context being is Jim was born really to help create more efficiency from an electronification perspective so that the market could be more efficient and we could broadly um, help more people to get access to this asset class. And so it operates very similar to a stock exchange, mm-hmm. not like a stock exchange, but like, you know, um, but like a stock exchange where it matches up my bids and offers against these blocks. We help them to facilitate the trading of it. But what's really interesting, Chris, for our business is that it gives us a huge competitive advantage in our fund business with mm-hmm. our investors, because we actually know what stuff trades at, right? Yeah. Most funds have no clue. They just have mm-hmm. no clue what trades at, but we actually have inside knowledge or we'll see something come in super distressed and we know that we can buy it. <laughs> Right. And so, so we have this huge advantage in terms of generating consistent returns for our investors and our limited partners because of the gem platform as well. No, I think that's, I think that's super interesting. I would have loved to have been part of the discovery sessions of where you analyze and figure out, you know, what is it that we need? What is this, you know, even because you can't just make an MVP or something like that. This needs to be well thought of because of all the legislation that you also have to fall in line with. Uh, were, were you a big part of that, uh, that in- innovation dreaming session to try to figure out what this gem platform is? Yeah, you know, and, and, and the thing about that, you know, if you think about the, the, you know, using MVP and kind of what we call that traditional startup language of product development and product market mm-hmm. fit, um, these kind of businesses require actually just investment, right? Like, for example, you we're regulated, right? Mm-hmm. We're regulated with FINRA. You know, we have an ATS license, which is an alternative, uh, alternative trading system license, right? Mm-hmm. So, and you need a technology investment. And so if you think about most funds, venture funds, stuff, they, they don't have the money to go make an investment in these kind of things, right? You know, so you have to have conviction that this will solve some deeper, broader problems. And not only in terms of competing competitive advantage for your business, but also in terms of helping the market to actually be more efficient. So, mm-hmm. so 
but because we came out of these platforms at Stockhouse, because we built the same technology kind of platforms, which we light, white label for the broker dealer industry, we had a lot of familiarity working in these things, right? And so, so that was helpful. But of course, you do, you do that, this was really kind of our leap of faith. Would there be adoption? Would people use it in order to help them to serve, you know, solve the problems that they have related to transacting here? And mm -hmm. it's been very successful to date. Uh, well, I, th I think it's interesting too how you can get the the, the inside knowledge and 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 you know, I'm, I'm I'm assuming you must have a we'll call it a kitty fund, you know, money set aside just for if you see some distressed uh, companies coming across, especially right now where there's there's a bit of a crush happening, uh, you know, through no, um, you know, it, it's it's not really it shouldn't be affecting the business, but it's the game that's played with the, you know, with, with the shares and all that, that's kind of this crush effect um, that gives you a lot of opportunity. Um, well, well, you know what, let me, let me, let me, let me just go into this one thing. I thought, you know, we, 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 we do our homework uh, before when we come up with the questions and thoughts around, uh, around what we want to, what we want to ask you. And one thing that I thought was super interesting, like really, really interesting, I think telling as well, is that your title for Investex isn't just founder, but it's chief entrepreneur. Uh -huh. Why? I, and I think that's awesome. Why chief entrepreneur with that title? Well, I think there's a couple elements to it. You know, it's really about culture. You know, you have to have a learning mindset. You know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, and you think, you know, all the answers, you're going to be a very unsuccessful entrepreneur. Oh, no. And so, in my opinion, and so, you know, the using the word entrepreneur is also about, you know, creating a culture of other people that have that same kind of learning mindset. It's a core value of ours learning. You know, we spend a lot of time and, and energy. I spend a lot of personal money and time and energy on learning. And mm -hmm. so the idea is to, is to say it's not about power around a chief executive. It's around, you know, kind of this culture of learning and attracting more people that want to actually, you know, do really incredible things. They want to create incredible value in markets, right? They want to, it's not just about execution. Execution obviously is a key element of it, but it's also about making sure that we've got this deep kind of learning mindset to it. And that we're bringing kind of some of the core values that entrepreneurship would bring into, you know, a business. And so mm -hmm. we have to be flexible. We have to be learning that. No, we have to be, we have to prioritize and focus because, you know, every entrepreneur's challenge is there's 35, you know, splashing, you know, silver objects in every mirror and every window they look at. Right. And mm -hmm. so, so don't get me wrong. The execution is super important, but I think it's just around, you know, trying to bring some of those core entrepreneurial values into the company. Sure. No. And, and I, and I love that. I mean, I was thinking, I mean, you probably aren't dealing so much with the entrepreneurs directly more with the, uh, you know, the, oh, I mean, maybe you are, but it, 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 should you be dealing with the entrepreneurs? I mean, saying CEO or president's one thing, but saying entrepreneur, I think they instantly go, you're speaking my language. Like it softens the conversation uh, with them as well, which helps, which helps get, you know, a little bit of trust on the inside. So I, I, I was just, you know, my mind was kind of going when I was reading that and thinking about all the opportunities. And I, I thought it was a great idea. So I, I really salute you in that. Well, we'll, we'll tell you what, why don't we, why don't we go? I mean, you've mentioned Stockhouse quite a bit, obviously, because it's hard to have gotten to where you are without, without Stockhouse. But can you tell me about the, uh, the creation story of Stockhouse and yeah, both Stockhouses? Stock <laughs> well, Stockhouse kind of came out of, um, um, my experience when so when I was in university, I, I ended up doing the, one of these student painting franchises. You know, you may you may remember College Pro they have today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I had one of those, and then I, and I was super successful at it. And awesome. And then I did a second year, and I was super successful at it. So I got to pay my way through university, which was great. But I had some extra money. And every day I go to the newspaper and you see these stock tables, right? You know, and these top traders and movers and stuff like that. And it just, I had a passion for it. I just was super interested, probably like the volatility, making my look in these things. When I was in university, took a vesting class, you know, and we went into the, you probably remember maybe at the time, uh, you know, the financial post at the time, which is part of the national post now, but, you know, they had this contest at universities and our, and our team came like, I think like, you know, 
10 or 12th in the country or something. And so mm -hmm. I had to get this passion around it. So, and I would take a little bit of money and I put it into these Vancouver stock exchange stocks, which were basically like these old mining stocks, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and they were super volatile, right? You know, they go up, you know, down and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, so I was always super passionate about it. But one of the things he found was that that's how we got information, right? And so one day a buddy of mine was at university he introduced me to this thing called the internet. I'm like, what's this? He showed me, it's like this bulletin board, right? Mm -hmm. and I'm like, geez, that's super interesting. Like what happens if we could get information on what's happening with these stocks and that instead of having to read in the newspaper, right? And coincidentally, mm -hmm. I was in a building. Um, so we, we started it. We started um, Stockhouse initially to help kind of create a, a small financial community where we publish information. And we had this company called Market News Publishing. We were like on the 10th floor and they were on the fifth floor and they were providing information to Bloomberg, you know, kind of mm -hmm. covering the Canadian markets, providing information to Bloomberg, but they had a data feed of, of information. And so I said to the guy, I said, hey, Bob, like what happens if I strung a cord mm -hmm. down the outside wall of the building, like, you know, like a cat cord, you know, can't probably, probably cat three at the time or something, <laughs> down into your box, you, you give me like a table every hour, we'll publish the top 20 traders on the NASDAQ and the New York and, and uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange. And we'll do that. And we'll, we'll put up this website. And he never heard of the internet either. You know, back in this time, it was like 2014, or sorry, uh, 1994. Yeah. Right? And I was yeah. just a kid. Like, I just come right out of university. So I was just a kid. And so, so we had this cord up the side of the wall of the building and into our thing. And, and then that was kind of the start of it. Right. And so, mm -hmm. but the idea really came from the same thing. You know, at the time, it started from just like the simple idea could we provide information. But, but really, what grew from, from Stockhouse was the same kind of passion that we have in Investex was. When you looked at the market at the time, what happened was the broker had all the information. Okay. You as an mm -hmm. investor had squat all, like literally you had squat all. The broker mm -hmm. had all the information. So as a result, the broker would charge you three or 4% commission to put in a trade. The market maker would take another eighth or 16th on the trade, right? On both sides. You sell a number three or 4% to get rid of the trade. You go, geez, I got to make 8%. First 8% goes to the house, right? Goes yeah. to that broker guy because he's got information. I don't have any. Mm -hmm. So, so when we started the business, it was really around being able to provide access to investors so they could have more information. And what, and what really came out of it, Chris, and I think, you know, we were part of this history, right? Mm -hmm. Which is places like us and Yahoo Finance and Motley Fool got mm -hmm. to get, you know, provide information. And then the, the discount brokers came in, the E-Trades and the TD Ameritrades and stuff. And that ecosystem changed investing forever, yeah. right? The participation rates went up 10x because what happens, we gave people the information instead of being controlled by a few. And Investex mm -hmm. was the same thing. Like why those same 10 institutional investors are the only ones that get to make money? Why can't more broader people be able to make it? And so that was really kind of what happened for us. And, and so as a result, you know, we built that business up and it was a lot of fun. Oh, it's about the democratization. I mean, that's what the internet's all about. I mean, I, I, I really love that. And again, I remember, you know, um, your company really, really well. Uh, you know, I, I was in university doing my, I did my first startup in 1999. So, uh, you know, and, uh, and burned it to the ground. So obviously right. was looking in, what was it? The BC tech website, whatever. And you, you always had the most jobs out there. It was always talked about. So that's why in my head, I'm like, this is an interesting company. Like this, this is definitely a mover and shaker. Um, well, tell me about you, you did exit. Um, and it was with the, the Market Herald in Australia, I believe. Is that is that yeah. correct? Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the, the context went back to, remember we said at the beginning of our talk that, you know, you can't run two businesses once. You know, when we talk about advice to investors, you know, it, it forms a, a piece of that. But, you know, and so as a result of that, I don't have any involvement anymore. You know, I was getting monthly reports on how the business is doing. I had a great leadership team running that business. 
but you know, to me, it just didn't make sense. Like, why should I own that? It's a distraction, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and the Market Herald was doing something very similar, just doing a different part of the world. And they had to come a mandate to try to, you know, create a broader global footprint for what they were trying to do in terms of empowering investors and affluent investors to be able to be more successful investing. So, so it was a great opportunity and time to do that. So I took advantage of that. And it allowed me also just to really, again, stay 100% focused on making Investex super successful. Mm. Well, I think it's also interesting because, I mean, again, Australian company and, you know, Vancouver known for its mining, you know, opaqueness, I'll right. give you, but mining. But, but you know, I'd say the, 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 the Internet definitely removed a lot of that opaqueness, um, um, you know, of the 90s. But, you know, Australia also known for the mining. <laughs> I mean, there was a real, not a synergy, but a similarity, I would say, in yeah. the market. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, I would think that'd be a, that'd be a really, really good fit. Well, you know, I'm kind of I mean, I'm kind of intrigued by, you know, the democratization of 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 the market of how you're doing it. And you're a board member of Hive Blockchain Technologies. And again, that democratization, the Hive is, you know, a Web 3.0 player. So is it fair enough to say that you're a strong believer in Web 3.0? Yeah, that'd be fair to say for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I think everyone's a strong believer in, you know, how technology is going to change experiences and everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and this augmented reality, virtual reality, these kind of elements of it. I mean, it's just think about it in purchasing a product, right? Like, you know, you know how a car drives a lot of time. You could go drive a car, of course, but you know, think mm -hmm. about, you know, if you could have some type of augmented reality or virtual reality that you, you could see it in front of you, you could experience it, you know, without having to go there. Like, how does that change the e-commerce, you know, purchase? You know, how does that change the buying behaviors of people? How does it change marketing? Right. How does it change, you know, how we experience all different types of things? So, you know, so and of course, there'll be lots of different areas that adopt it sooner and faster than other areas. But I, it's just super fascinating to me. You know, if, if, if the if the Web is really kind of 2D, you know, but we like things we've started to see things in films and stuff in 3D and we experience things in 3D as technology advances for us to be able to do things. It creates incredible different business opportunities. And if it's not going to if people don't think that's going to impact their business, they're foolish. Right. It's going to impact every business. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it's, 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 really it's funny. Cause last night, you know, I was driving, um, my son and I went to the driving range and I was, was talking to him about tech and I brought up the conversation, which is a weird conversation is I would have loved to have tried to explain to myself when you know, was your age, he's 14, what virtualization is because just to understand that everything is going to go digital, like, you know, at a young age and to really comprehend that whole concept, um, would have really put you ahead in terms of the mind space. And I think people need to be that way with Web 3.0. Like, what is it that's that base, you know, that base change? What, you know, I mean, the 3.0 is a little bit marketing, but there's that base change around um, being able to, the democratization of the information. So the decentralization of the information, which I see as key, much like the, you know, again, the virtualization of, of information, how you can do everything. And then, and then just like you said, I mean, if you don't think that's going to affect every business and every business is a tech business now, you, you'd be fooling yourself. So I, I, I highly recommend, you know, dear, dear, dear listener, uh, listeners, I hope, but I'll say dear listener, um, you know, do try to get your head around this, the, the, this concept that is coming out because it, if you do a startup now and all of a sudden you find that it's just been leaped because someone did it in a, in a, you know, uh, uh, utilizing more modern technologies or at least, you know, figuring out a way to make it more efficient through that um you're going to get leaped over so you better you better be aware you better be aware well well 
you know, I I had a really good and interesting conversation. Like, clearly, you knew, you know, we're talking about layer two, layer one of crypto and, and all that and, uh, during our breakfast, um, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, but wh what do you think the biggest challenge with crypto adoption, especially, I mean, I think it was, a, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely taken a beating blah, blah, um, almost all of them um, right. across the board. What do you think is the biggest challenge with crypto adoption these days? You know, I think there's there's a few. I mean, crypto is really fascinating on some level because, you know, everyone can understand the need for some type of global transfer or monetary transfer system, right? That works mm -hmm. without having all these kind of gated pieces in place that banks, everyone taking fees everywhere along the, along the run. Um, you know, and so, so people get that part, right. And they also, um, and, and I think what's interesting about crypto reminds me of gold bugs, right. That they're super passionate about the libertarian view of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, which, which, you know, which has extended down into the kids in such a, a, you know, an interesting way. My son works, worked this summer, you know, after university works before going back to school. And what does he do with his money? You think he puts it into stocks? No, he gets his, he gets his uh, wealth sim or wealth simple account, mm -hmm. opens up his wealth simple account and puts it into Ethereum. Okay. Mm. Son, why you put it into Ethereum? <laughs> oh, I read it on Reddit. Okay. No, put it aside. All right. So, but, but the point is like, you know, these, the next generation is coming up, you know, and seeing and wanting to be a part of what they view the future is going to be in terms of how they experience with it, right? And so, you know, and you look at the old Minecraft games that my kids were playing, right? Like these virtual worlds. Like now, there's a whole bunch of social consequences to this, right? Mm -hmm. And and they're and they're super real, right? And so that's not going to stop it, but they're super real in terms of isolation and all those kind of things that are happening as a result. But mm -hmm. but it is really, I think, really interesting. So so how do you get broader adoption? To answer your question. You know, um, in order to really get, you know, high usage of crypto, you got to get it really into how people use it in everyday life of other types of monetary forms. So how do I pay for it with my driver, right? Well, I can't give them a Bitcoin that takes, you know, eight minutes for it to print and verify and all that. None of that can happen right now. The Bitcoin Lightning Network is now working to solve some of those issues, right? Mm -hmm. Where they basically can, you know, basically, you know, trade settle instantly, right? But you need to have, you know, kind of, uh, for, for mass adoption, you got to lower some of those fees and you have to really improve the UI experience of it, right? In terms of how it can work. So these are mm -hmm. some really key things. The other part is regulatory has to come up with some framework on how they want to manage it. And I'll give you a perfect example, like we know with Hive, right? So in Hive, we own a, a lot of coins. So we're a very, very large miner. You know, we have, I think, what is it? Three X a hash, uh, you know, going to six X a hash, mm -hmm. you know, and so... Um, and we store a lot of these coins, right? We hold them, you know, you, know, you want to think of it that way. So mm -hmm. we store a lot of these coins and in the markets, what happens is you, you price the coins up and down based on the fair market value, like any kind of financial instrument would be. In mm -hmm. the US, they're seen as intangible assets, mm -hmm. right? Because the regulatory, financial regulatory body in the US, you know, thinks that, that it's intangible assets. So what does that mean is you bring it on a cost. So let's say you bought a Bitcoin at $40,000 and it's 30,000. You have to mark down your intangible asset, but if it goes back up to 40, you can't mark it up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so what happens is there's these things that say, well, why would I adopt and put these things on my balance sheet if they're gonna if they're gonna work that way against our business? Right. Mm -hmm. So as an example. Now, of course, <laughs> Elon says he doesn't really care. He's gonna put it on anyways. So, but I do think that you know the regulatory standards have to kind of establish some rules for compliance, tax treatment, and how they're gonna be to be consistent. So if mm -hmm. I think about okay, well, how do we get this to have more broader adoption? The user experience gotta change. Like, you know, it's, it's gotta be faster, you know, easier. Have to come down. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Easier is mm -hmm. the better word actually. You yeah. Know, because you're absolutely it's easier. Right. So it's gotta be easier. It's gotta be faster, you know, and then we have to have a regulatory framework that's consistent, understood, you know, but with that said, 
every big brokerage firm, Wirehouse has a crypto desk, all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Because they know this is a massive asset class that has incredible liquidity, right? So, mm -hmm. but if you get the mass adoption, we're going to fix a few more things. Uh, I think that's interesting. I, I also, I mean, the re regulatory is interesting. I mean, you, and you mentioned Elon, but I mean, the, the challenge and the benefit, or but I'd say the challenge with Elon is he can create the market to move, you know, so he buys 2 billion crypto or Bitcoin, puts it, in, puts it in Tesla and say, now you can buy, you know, Tesla's with Bitcoin. Well, that makes the market go up seven to 15%, just based on him, right? There's, there's, it's, it's kind of insane, but very few people have that reach or ability, um, though, you know, Elon, if you're listening, and I know you are as a Canadian, I'd love to have you on this show. Um, well, you know, let's, 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 let's kind of skip chapter here. Let's go, let's go back to the Canadian theme. I mean, again, mentioned the C100, really, really, really appreciate your time there. But why do you, why is the C100 relevant to you? You know, I love entrepreneurship. I've been involved in entrepreneurship all my life. My friends are all entrepreneurs. You know, I've got a few others, you know, but, you know, <laughs> most of them are entrepreneurs. And there's just a passion energy is exciting to be around, right? And I remember being young, same idea, full of piss and vinegar, you know, just kind of, you know, doing, doing as hard as I could. Um, so, I, I, and I'm really fascinated by the C100, you know, and I actually only got to learn about it a couple of years ago. Um, but because I spent so much time down the valley in the Bay Area as well, because of where we invest and, you know, and do business, you know, I thought this is just so smart. Like, of course, you know, some great smart people got together and said, hey, look, we got to connect this ecosystem, you know, into the Canadian ecosystem, make it more successful. And so the early pioneers of C100, I have a ton of respect for, you know, and I think it's just an amazing vision that they had to try to make Canada and entrepreneurship better. And so, you know, I love uh, going down and supporting that and, you know, being able to also meet some of these founders and uh, hopefully some of them will be in our target zone where we'll invest. I mean, it'll be a few years, but Hopefully someone will be like that. There's some great people down there. It's great to meet with them. And it's a great energy session for a couple of days. I just love it. Oh, no, it's, 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 it's magical. I think, you know, and, and, you know, I, and, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a network effect. I mean, that's, that's the idea, right? Like um, the, the whole idea is, of, Hey, let's get everyone to kind of know each other and then maybe create opportunities that are greater than just you for, for, you know, people of Canada or countries from Canada. And I guess it, it, it is very effective in the sense of I had one of the fellows companies who was actually from Toronto and the, the CEO who was on the way to Singapore and messaged me and dropped by the office yesterday just to chat. And, and, and that alone wouldn't have existed if this organization didn't exist. And, and I'm really impressed by her company and, and was really, you know, hey, yeah, let's chat. I'd love to learn more and see how I can help. So I thought that was great. Well, you know, the theme as we're talking here um, is about, you know, talking to wonderful Canadian entrepreneurs like yourself in order to prepare that next generation of, of startup from founders. Um, so I always have these two questions and I, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on it. But uh, the first is, can you please share one piece of advice that would help younger Canadian founders? Yeah, I think um, entrepreneur is such an interesting thing. And, uh, and it's interesting because a lot of people see the success of it because, you know, the media and friends and stuff highlight success. It's kind of like investing. You don't go around and tell your friends about making the investment in WeWorks, right? You know, you tell your friends about you made the investment in Airbnb. Right? I mean, that's really what you do, right? You know, same kind of area related industry. One was super successful, you know, and so, and so I think that there's this image that's really great and positive of what success and entrepreneurship means, right? Mm -hmm. A person that has all of the opportunities and they've got the, the wealth and success and the, you know, and people look up to them and all that kind of stuff. The reality of it, as we all know, right, is it is a massive, massive slug, right? And so, you know, and I try to, you know, I want to encourage people to do it because we need more entrepreneurs, no question. 
But I also, you know, I think entrepreneurs who or first start want to be entrepreneurs, you know, have to also, you know, take a toll of the cost, right? And so, and they have to understand it because it's going to impact them, right? And so it's either going to impact them because they don't go all in, right? It's just like, well, I'm going to go still be at home all the time and have, you know, with my family at five o'clock and, you know, and, and these kind of things. And on the weekends, that's family time, right? Like mm-hmm. that will not work. Your business is going to fail. It's just going to fail. It's going to fail, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's going to fail. Or what happens too is that you're all totally, you might be all totally in and don't have any balance at all and your family's going to fail. And so mm-hmm. something's going to fail. And so, so the context is, is I think, is to really take stock of if it's your first time being an entrepreneur, like, why do you want to be that entrepreneur, right? If it's for the money and it's for those kind of things, like, hmm. you know, it's going to be super challenging for you, right? But if you deeply see a problem, you just, you have, you think every day about how do I, that, that just, I, I got to be there and fix that and solve that, right? And have that kind of passion. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be really, really important. But the other element to kind of being kind of what I call just all in, right? Like an understanding being all in, you have to be all in, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is that, you know, also if you can and it doesn't choose us sometimes, right? Because we see a problem, usually if you're a young entrepreneur, like I did and others, right? Some were just lucky, they saw a problem in a big market opportunity and others just saw a problem in a small market opportunity they wanted to fix, right? And mm-hmm. so my, my, my kind of element of being all in is also be all in on problems that are worth solving, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't know they're worth solving, go talk to some other people whether they're worth solving. Because you solve some small problem, you know, it's gonna be a pretty small business. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, there's a lot of lifestyle businesses as a result, but but there's some amazing problems that need to be solved with some really smart people that are seeing them, you know, mm-hmm. more people that do that are better. So, so that would be kind of my kind of thing would be like, you know, make sure you understand what it's going to take to be all in. Cause if you're not ready, you know, you're going to have a tough time being successful. Uh, I think that's, I think that's wonderful advice. And, you know, you're kind of reflecting on exactly what you said in the sense of that, you know, everyone talks about the positive and not the negative. And there's something that I always say about, you know, cause I have friends who are, you know, writers or singers or, you know, these sort of artistic things. And, and, you know, I've always said that the critics, are usually the people that failed in those industries, but where are the critics in, in the entrepreneurial industry? Because you know, there's, there's, there, there, there. I guess they're news reporters. But um, well, anyhow, I'm just blah blah. Um, why, don't, why, don't, why don't we go to this, 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 this one question I love because I always love hearing about people that you look up to personally. So can you can you name you know a Canadian entrepreneur star or founder that that you look up to? You know, it's funny. I get it. I've, I've been asked that a few times over my mm-hmm. career, and and I've, I struggled with it a little bit. And part, part, Part of the reason why I struggle with it a little bit is that, you know, I, I think that um, I can see the success of someone because it's shown in different ways, right? And usually it's hard to spend a lot of time with those people because they're super successful. And so it's hard to kind of be connected to them. Um, but I'm always concerned about like outside the business success, who are they in terms of the values driven as an individual, right? And we didn't talk too, too much about my own personal values. Um, but But the context being is that, you know, like I would hate to say, here's someone I look up to, but at home is a terrible father, is a terrible husband, you know, is a terrible, you know, person with, you know, the community, say it takes all their money to buy more Learjets, you know, and more Ferraris, you know, and, and doesn't support, and it's okay to buy those things too, but also make sure that they're supporting people that are born different mm-hmm. zip codes that didn't get the opportunities we got given, which is one of my For personal sure. philosophies, right? We have a mm-hmm. responsibility to do that. So, so the one person that um, I think kind of does emulate that from my experience and and I had his president who used to work for him, work for me for a number of years. And so I got to hear some of the stories of this. And that, and that was a local guy who you know, which is Jimmy Patterson. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, and, and Jimmy, you know, old school entrepreneur with dealerships and, you know, sign business and grocery stores and, you know, sugar and, and all these kind of old school, not tech, 
right? Not tech. Everything but. but. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Everything but tech, right? But there's some principles of things that I thought were really interesting about him that I kind of looked at that I said, that, that makes a lot of sense. So so you've probably heard the story about, you know, at the car dealership, they fire the bottom person, right? Like, you know, every month they go through, you know, kind of like a Glenn Glary and Ross kind of idea. Like, you know, you're at the bottom, you get fired. Absolutely not true. But what mm-hmm. they did have is they had discipline on what was important in terms of how we created a sales culture that created value for our customers and for their business, right? You know, there was a story I got told um, where, you know, um, Jimmy would not let people come in late. If you were late, they locked the door in the meeting, okay? So you come up late. And so uh, the guy who worked for me told me the story one time about a guy who was late and came in there and they, he, wasn't able, he wasn't able to go in. So he grabbed the ax off the wall and, you know, smashed the door to get in the thing. <laughs> So, but the, but the point, but the point of what was interesting was, was again, it's like, you know, values matter, right? If our mm. value of being on time and being respectful is on time, they matter. They matter if you make them matter. If people Completely. come in late, all they don't matter, right? And so I see this kind of really values driven, you know, and we could debate whether you agree or I agree with these values, but a values driven kind of mindset, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he also understood that, that owning the bank or being the bank is what created a lot of success in that business. But mm-hmm. a lot of guys figure that out after Jimmy. The other piece that I thought was really interesting too was that, you know, he he seems to have, you know, and again, don't know him personally, but, you know, seems to have, you know, he's got a wife for a long, long time. He's got the same assistant, you know, for 60 years, right? You know, he goes, he supports his church. He supports the community too. Like, you know, hospitals. He, yeah. Like a number of years ago, you remember when the Stanley Park, you know, the windstorm came through, you mm-hmm. know, he wrote a million dollar check to help restore some of the trees. That's a community thing or the Surrey hospital, right? Yep. He is the, there's a Christian um, school in Surrey called Pacific Academy. They support. So mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of things that he supports in terms of his philanthropy related to his values. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think it's someone that, you know, I've actually never personally met. I've always respected from afar, just his mm-hmm. business nature and his values driven. And I had a couple opportunities to learn some stories from, you know, the president who used to work with him and can worked with me. So, so I, I think, uh, yeah, now I do think one thing though, right. Mm-hmm. I know he loves working like Warren Buffett and other people's like working and stuff like that, but you know, and I guess if his wife signed up for that, it's all good, but I don't want to work that hard till I'm 97 years old. <laughs> I hear you. you know, I, I actually have met Jimmy a couple of times. And he is a true gentleman. Like he is a true gentleman. And even things like you see him driving his car, his little Hyundai or whatever it is, you know, and he, he's definitely on the, the older side now, but I mean, you know, uh, what's this, the stores he owns. I, well, I mean, it's quite a few of them. The, um, the, 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 the um, uh, you can't even think of it right now, but he actually stood out there during the opening in, in the Olympic village to shake people's hands and say hello and welcome. And I just thought, wow, wow, you know, you are one of the wealthiest people in Canada and you think this is worth your time. And, 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 and I think what you just touched on about values, you know, I don't even call them old time values because I think honesty, timeless respect, I think that's a value no matter what. I think that has to be Im- embedded no matter what. But he definitely lives by it clearly. And, and, and thank you for sharing he, because I have not had Jimmy, I mean, especially because again, everything but tech, I have right. not had anyone mention him. And I think that's incredibly valuable. So thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, that one. Well, you know what? And I'm just going to be redundant and say, thank you for sharing today. Cause this is, this has been so much fun. I learned so much. I mean, I, I wish I could say I knew more on, on in stocks, uh, you know, the, the equity markets and all this, I believe you, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best not to cry the, the past couple of weeks as well. But um, you know, I also recognize at some point there is going to be some good opportunities to start picking up things once the chaos, uh, yeah. you know, leaves, uh, leaves us and it will, cause markets always correct. 
<laughs> Mark is always correct, but, but, but Mark, um, you know, thank you. Thank you for, 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 for doing, doing, doing this. And also thank you for your, uh, you know, for what you do in the community. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear about all this. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. Great to see you and look forward to having more conversations. Excellent. Excellent. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T, that is three T's, dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at T-T-T underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.